Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 25th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The discovery of 39 bodies in the back of a lorry in Essex last month shocked people all over the world. It also highlighted the great risk people are willing to take when hoping to seek refuge. Twelve men and two boys found in the back of a lorry on a ferry heading to Ross Lair from Sherbrooke last week must have known how much danger they were putting themselves in, but in desperation, we assume, they decided to take the best worst option. The scale of uh, the displacement of uh, people around the world has resulted in uh, the highest number of people seeking asylum in this country since 2008. The numbers continue to rise, up 20% last year, and so far this year it's up 60%. The Department of Justice is now looking for ways to provide accommodation for the amount of people seeking international protection. 5,500 asylum seekers are to be housed in new direct provision centres. 1,256 of these people will be located in Kildare, Wicklow, Louth and Meath at a cost of €65 million over two years. That's according to the General Secretary of the Department of Justice. Aidan O'Driscoll outlined the details in a letter to the Public Accounts Committee. Sean Fleming is a Fianna Fáil TD for Leash and is the chairperson of the Public Accounts Committee and on the line. Doesn't a very good morning to you, Sean Fleming. Thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, this uh, is obviously a significant challenge, particularly in a country where housing is a great challenge in itself. Uh, thank you, Mike. And yes, that actually is complicating the situation and a very difficult situation is because of the lack of housing in Ireland, people who actually come here go through the asylum process and are granted permission to remain and live in Ireland and work in Ireland and stay here for the rest of their lives. When they are granted that, there's 800 people as we speak today still in the asylum centres but they've nowhere to go because of the housing crisis. So in fact, up to a thousand of the spaces that are now being required in these asylum centres are the house people who shouldn't be in them anymore, who should be moving out into the community. But because of the housing crisis that the government hasn't dealt with, um, we're in the situation 
that they're staying in the asylum centres and that's costing obviously a lot more money and they should be out able to get work and able to rent somewhere to live in the meantime. Mm. Well, they can't get work. Uh, at least uh, that would be, would be the experience of many of them uh, and housing is unaffordable for them as it is for many other people in uh, this country uh, but all the more difficult for people who've never lived in this country outside of a direct provision centre. They, they get, can't get references, for example. Yeah, but like my experience is, and you have a big centre in Mosney, we have four centres in my constituency. Many of these are very well educated. I've met qualified engineers, you know, um, in some of these centres that fled for their lives from the country. So some Mm. of them are highly qualified. Yes, they mightn't get a job at that category for quite a period of time, but a number of them can actually get work and Mm. a number of them actually do. But the housing situation is is the bigger problem. I I, I, I was talking to a first-year engineering student quite recently, and he was telling me he was on a a night out with the lads. Uh, And uh, they were in a a nightclub and they went down... uh, to the toilet uh, and you know this thing that uh, you see or may have seen in recent years are where somebody is uh, offering soap and different products in, in the toilet and uh, tends to be a black person uh, and and that was the case this time around uh, and uh, he asked the fellows uh, what are you doing oh we're studying engineering oh right oh, no, I, I'm an engineer uh, and uh, the young guy who was telling me this was amazed uh, because uh, they spoke to him about maths and he said, God, he was just streets ahead of us. Uh, he was definitely an engineer, a very qualified, very well-experienced individual uh, who was working in the toilets of a nightclub in Dublin. Yeah, and, and that's a fact. And hopefully, mm. in due course, he'll go get a job. But uh, it doesn't, I suppose... Or be less get a job. Yeah, well, mm. he might not have got his status yet. That's my point. Mm. He could be in an asylum centre and he's doing that on the side, maybe Mm. unofficially. But when he gets his legal status, he is entitled then to work in Ireland. And, you know, a number of them do get their legal status at the end of the day. So I don't know Mm. which category that guy was in. No, no, no. I I, I understand. It's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just to highlight the point uh, that we are talking about people uh, who are quite often uh, educated, qualified uh, and uh, have a lot to offer us here in this country. Uh, but we're in this situation where we're, we're trying to provi- pro- provide accommodation for them uh, and that's posing a, a huge challenge, as you say. And given the problem that we have uh, with housing uh, and how even if people are granted leave to stay, they can't move out of these direct provision centres, how are we going to accommodate so many more? Well, <laughs> there's a way of doing it and it's very simple and it couldn't be more basic is that if they dealt with the, the people who come here in a more timely manner, mm. at the moment, the average time for somebody when they arrive here at the time to get a final decision either to go home or to be allowed to stay is almost two years. Mm. If that time was halved to less than one year, you could do, deal with twice as many people in the same accommodation centre. So the reason we have such a problem with accommodation is, one, yes, the numbers have gone up in recent years, but they're nowhere near as high as they were, you know, 10, 15 years Mm. ago. There was up to 10,000 coming at one stage per annum for several years. But Mm. in any event, the numbers are high again in recent years. But the problem is the length of time people... Um, are it is taking for people's cases to be adjudicated on. So if you have 100 people coming into an asylum centre and they're going to stay there for two years, that's a lot of space. But if you for two, if the same 100 people come in and leave after year one because it's decided, a different 100 can go mm. into the same centre in the second year. So 
have, the problem could be halved overnight in terms of the number of spaces if the government ensured that all cases were dealt with within one year. And some people don't wait at all. I mean, averages are always based on uh, yeah. the uh, average of uh, the two extremes. Some people don't wait at all because they're automatically given a, a refugee status uh, when they seek asylum because yeah. of where they're coming from. Others, uh, we hear, have been in the system for 10, 12 <clears throat> 14 years. Yeah, there, there would be about 200 people over seven years in the system and they may be subject to very complicated judicial reviews at the European Court of Justice and yes, there would be a tiny number in that category but there are about 1,500 people well over three years in the mm. system who shouldn't really be there at this stage. Now the other cases you mentioned, you know, people who are being given refugee status, some of the Syrians, Ireland went out with EU countries and agreed to bring in maybe 100 people or 200 or up to 400 and they were a special case rather than the cases you and I are talking about are people who land in Ireland unannounced that we didn't know about. Some of the ones you were referring to earlier are specifically brought in by the Irish government under a special programme. But most of the cases are people who land here. You know, they come down from the north, haven't come through England, they come in from England or they come from Cherbourg or somewhere like that on a ferry. And tell us a little bit more about the information you've received uh, from uh, the General Secretary, because we heard speculation over the weekend uh, that he's been communicating uh, with his counterpart in uh, the Department of Defence. And uh, there's the prospect or the possibility, at least, uh, that disused army barracks may be used for accommodating people. Yeah, well... Every option should be looked at, including that, and the, the properties may or may not be suitable. They're just starting to explore it. But my view, and I think everybody knows, if you're trying to get the Department of Justice and the Department of Defence to renovate a building or to put new facilities on some of their existing sites, they will take a few years. That's how long every t- one of these things takes between design, tender, approval, construction. So that's welcome, but that would be in a good day, at least three years away before those departments can come on stream with that. But that's important um, and it should be looked at. But they are looking for tenders from the private sector in the meantime um, for the next couple of years, the next, on average, two to three year contracts. Maybe the tide is over under them. And the costs of those are coming in higher than expected. But the reason for that is the Department of Justice, the figures they were expecting were unreal to start with. Mm. And, and it's not that they're excessively priced, it's that the Department of Justice officials hadn't a proper handle on this before they started. For example, yeah. in 2017, um, the cost of the asylum facilities in Ireland were 67 million. This year, they were expected to be 70 million. Um, at the beginning of the year, according to the Department of Justice's own estimate, and it's now going to be 100 million. So the Department of Justice haven't got a handle on this, mm. and their their original estimates have all proven to be unfounded. Why is that? Uh, I, I mean, uh, there's three new contracts that uh, have uh, been uh, awarded recently out of uh, the eight that we're talking about this morning uh, with uh, these new centres uh, that uh, they're looking to establish, uh, and uh, they came in uh, under the estimated cost in the Midwest. Uh, they thought it would be 15.7 million and it was only 12 million. But in the Southeast, it was very different. They thought it would cost them 28 million. It cost 36.9 million. And in the Midwest, uh, they believed it would be 11 million, but it came in at 27.6 million. A huge difference. Yeah, and it does show you the original figures the department 
were expecting didn't bear any reality to the reality out there when they actually put something out to tender. Mm, two and a half times more yeah. in the last example. Do you know yeah. what it sounds like? It sounds like the children's hospital, right? Mm, yeah. um, it sounds like broadband. Mm. It's this, maybe all governments, but this government is incapable of getting a, a, a budgets done properly. They always come in with a low figure to say it won't cost too much and then kind of blame <clears throat> the builder or the contractor for being so expensive. They don't get it right to begin with. They underestimate all their costs. They don't take all the factors into account and then they always pretend they're shocked at the high figures when they come in. If they had said at the beginning it's going to cost this amount of money, the government would have said, oh, that's very dear. So deliberately, I think, lots of sections of the public service give a a low Mm. estimate so the minister will be saying, well, far ahead, and then the high figure comes in and then they blame somebody else. So a lot of it has got to do with underestimating, not getting the projections right to start with, and then when the real figures come in, the the pretender shocked. Uh, would you be concerned that there are some people uh, who may not want a, a direct provision centre to be established near them and believe they can stop it from happening if uh, they burn it down before people move in? Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I'm shocked and very disappointed and saddened because I take the view any, yes, take young family, a mother with young children, you know, it's in all their nature to try and help those. And some people are using spurious arguments about the cost or they don't have adequate facilities and, you know, are they saying they'd be better off left in the high seas of the Mediterranean? I can't support that approach. However, the Department of Justice hasn't been doing its work here at all. We've all been through asylum centres in our constituency over the years and some of them, despite initial resistance, can work out well. And I think if the Department explained and had a document out for, published it so everyone knows if a centre is coming, there's going to be um, a local health nurse visiting the place on, on a daily basis or a weekly basis. There will be a GP services. There has been discu- there will be discussions with the local primary and second level schools in relation to school accommodation. And if all those things, mm. if there's a framework in place and people um, say, you know, we don't have these facilities, if that was all explained in advance, you will get over a lot of the issues. Is this the right department to be overseeing it? I mean, these are not centres of detention. No, they're, 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 they're accommodation centres. Yeah, they are accommodation, and, cer- and certainly, and I think there's even a report that some of the people who came in from Rosslare to weekend didn't go to the, 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 the accommodation centres allocated to them. There's even a suggestion they might have left the country. Mm. And it's important to note that there, by, 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 my, by my reckoning, there's 8,500 people seeking protection in Ireland today, and there's only less than 8,000 in the various centres, accommodation or emergency, because some of them, some people who come already had family members or friends and they're not obliged to stay in the accommodation. They're offered a place, but some of them might have family members who were approved to stay here from a few years earlier and go and live with them temporarily. So they don't have to stay in any of these centres. It's offered to them, but 90% of them tend to stay in it mm. and they don't have to stay in it. But if they were detention centres, you could understand that coming under the remit of uh, the Department uh, of Justice, is it the right department to oversee accommodation centres? Well, one could argue it should really be the housing department through local authorities and approved housing bodies. But because they're coming here to seek permission to stay because of um, their saying, in most cases, they're fleeing a war-torn area, 
Department of Justice and, and, and security clearance is the most important thing from most people's point of view. Mm. So they have to go through the Department of Justice. In terms of providing the accommodation, yeah, I take your point, it could be done by the OPW or someone else, but the, 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 the right to stay and remain or the, the decision to send them home is a matter for the Department of Justice. Okay, I take it we'll be hearing more uh, with uh, officials in front of uh, the Public Accounts Committee in relation to the plan to spend this money. Absolutely. Okay, we leave it there and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sean Fleming, a Fianna Fáil TD in Leash, is the chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, you had uh, the Sunday Independent yesterday, you may have noticed uh, a headline in it, uh, the chairman, the WhatsApp messages and uh, the fallout, the inside story behind the GAA's latest county board saga. I'm sure you'd have had uh, significant interest in this story if you're from County Mead. It was written by the sports editor of uh, the Sunday Independent, John Green, who's a Mead County Board delegate for Slane GFC and he's in studio with us uh, this morning good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us uh, morning, as you said you're very close to this story yeah, but uh, maybe uh, you t- tell us a, a little bit about the background because this goes back to a, a match between your own club and Drum Conrath a number of years ago yeah, it, it, it goes right back to uh, February the 26th of 2017, a game that I wasn't at actually, uh, it was a contentious matter. Uh, sorry, I should say it is important to point out that I, I, you know, as I've done this story as a journalist, but because I'm a member of the Slane Club, I suppose I'm in a unique position. I, mm. I know the story quite well. Yeah, And, and I think the paper and, uh, yeah, we, we made that, made that very the clear, yes. That yeah, was yeah, very yeah. important. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, there was a, there was a game which finished with in a controversial uh, controversially. It was abandoned with a couple of minutes to go after some sort of a scuffle broke out on mm. on an embankment uh, involving at least a spectator from each side, and uh, it seems that one of the slain players uh, Got became involved. concerned mm-hmm. about uh, a young fella. Mm-hmm. He became concerned because his family were cl- quite close to it, mm. his mother and sister, and he ran to them. Mm. Under the GA rules, that constitutes leaving the field of play. It, the timeline was later disputed, but the long and the short it was, there were fines and there were bans, and uh, that young player was banned for six mm. months for leaving the field of play. Okay. Slain subsequently. Well, he'd, uh, he'd had a, a good day otherwise. Yeah, yeah, he'd scored five out of the club's eight points. Yeah. And, and, and there's uh, a reason for mentioning that, which will make sense later yeah, in the so, conversation. So yeah. In, yeah. in mm-hmm. a bizarre mm-hmm. twist, then, which, mm. these, which <laughs> these things always seem to happen in bizarre <laughs> twists, yeah. the two teams were scheduled to meet again a few weeks later on St. Mm. Patrick's Day, just by coincidence. Uh, Slain were trying to have their appeal heard to uh, get the young player have his appeal heard and uh, Mead were refusing to hear it before the game and some there was still a lot of simmering tensions between the two clubs and it was felt uh, I I think Jim Connors might have felt the same now but I can't speak for them Mm. that it might be better if there was a bit of distance between the two games Uh, anyway it was insisted the game go ahead Slane chose not to play it on Mm. health and safety grounds and went to Leinster Council where uh, you know the Mead County Board got quite a significant slap on the wrist from mm. Leinster Council. The young player's suspension was revoked, and Slane, who had been thrown out of the competition for not mm. fielding, were reinstated into the competition, and the fine that was imposed on them was quashed. And, and the slap on the wrist was that they had insisted on the game going ahead yes. before the appeal had been heard. Yes, yeah. and they had felt that they had. They actually found that the County Board hadn't followed mm. due process and hadn't been fair. Okay, so bring Peter O'Halloran in. So, uh, so Peter O'Halloran is, was chairman of the Mead CCC at the time, 
Uh, he subsequently then became the county board chairman, as we know. Uh, in July of this year, uh, quite out of the blue, the Slane Club received an approach from a referee, uh, Patrick Nealis, uh, and he uh, had messages from Peter Halloran dating back to the time of... The, the, the Peter's from Drum Conrad actually, and was at that game as it happens. And there were messages from uh, from Peter Halloran to the referee saying that he'd be sending him to Slane to ride them. And then right. he said they were tramps. Right. And Nealis replied a few weeks later. I think he was quite in shock as he mm. tells it himself. He replied a few weeks later, "When will you be sending me to uh, do that?" And uh, the message came back. Uh, in a month or two when things die down. Right. What did he mean by that? By which to, to, to ride slain. Well, presumably... That, that's, that, that was uh, the expression, was it? Yeah. Presumably mm. what, it would, what, what it would mean is that you would, you know, that the referee would see to it that uh, slain would find it very hard to get a free and to, to win the game. Right. That he'd be sent to. Presumably, I mean, I, I don't uh, know. But fix the game, really, is well, it? That's, it's not far off that... Mm. It never. It was never acted upon, and it's important yeah. that that's mm. said. It was never acted upon by either side. Uh, in his contact, but to year, determine the outcome of the game. Well, basically, yes. I mean, that's what it certainly reads like, mm. you know. And it's, you know, you've heard an, you've, you heard the expression mm. down through the years in football, in any sport, where mm. a team sport, where you come off the pitch afterwards, and someone will say, "Oh, the ref rode us today," or. Right. Yeah, so mm. you got very hard to get fair play on the field. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's once that became knowledge in, in during the summer, it kind of uh, the Slane Club was reeling and really didn't know what to do, uh, and actually took legal advice as it happens at the time. Mm. In, in himself then decided that uh, he couldn't. He, in his letter to to Slane, he said that he didn't, you know, he couldn't in all conscience let this go on any longer. And he decided to make a formal complaint to the county board. Mm. And a few weeks after that complaint was made, as we know, then uh, Peter Halland uh, stepped down as chairman. Uh, mm. He admitted that he had sent the messages and that he had sent them in the heat of the moment. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the points I make in my article yesterday is that in the heat of the moment doesn't ring true because there was at least there was over three weeks between the messages. Mm. You know, the heat of the moment suggests that you send a message yeah. just when you're angry, which, mm, yeah. you know, we're all guilty of that. Mm. Uh, but I don't think that that two weeks later, yeah. that that... It was a, a three-week-long yeah. red haze. Yeah, and the such, other yeah. thing is yeah. that uh, he, in his statement when he resigned, he mm. said he deeply regretted uh, what he had done. He didn't apologise, though. But he, as of, uh, as of late Saturday night, uh, certainly Slane Club and, and Mr Nealis, who I spoke to again mm. on Saturday evening, had not received an apology, uh, nor have the county board apologised mm. to, to Patrick Nealis. T- 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 tell me more about Mr Nealis. He's the referee. Uh, uh, and this obviously festered for some time uh, because he got the messages in March of 2017, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah. then reported it in July of this year. He approached Slane in July of this year. I've since I've, I've learned since that uh, he may have said it to a couple of people at the time. Mm. And... In, in in the great way of Irish society m- might have been advised that he would be better off forgetting about it and right, getting yeah, on with yeah, his yeah. life. It's not worth it. But it simmered and, I mean, he'd have to speak for himself. I have spoken to him, but it, it just did, it was on his mind a lot mm. and it, 
you know, when something is on your mind, you come to a point where, where you make a decision, yeah. and that was mm-hmm. in summer of this year he came to that decision. Okay, and technology being what it is, he still had he still the messages had the on his phone yeah. and yeah. was able to send them on to the yeah. board. That resulted in the admission and the regret and the resignation of O'Halloran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the story had been, uh, another newspaper had carried the story uh, in September at the time, uh, the Mail on Sunday. So I suppose the point of yesterday's story was that following the resignation of the, the former chairman, uh, an investigation was launched and I suppose that was really the spark for, for the piece yesterday because mm. uh, it was rightly felt that uh, they couldn't investigate themselves. Uh, you know, this is the Executive Committee of Mead GA. This is their former colleague mm. and probably a very close friend for many of them. Uh, so an outside, three outside people were brought in, including uh, a former GA president, and they investigated the matter. Surprisingly to me and to many people, they didn't speak to Slane mm. at all in the course of their investigation, which lasted about a month or six weeks. And uh, following on from that, they submitted a report to the county board uh, last Friday week. Just uh, It was hand-delivered to the county secretary mm-hmm. uh, on Friday, that Friday evening. And the Mead Management Committee met last Monday night this day week to discuss the report. For most of the Management Committee, this was their first time seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose one of the problems that we have now is that the report was delivered. It found that uh, it found that uh, the former chairman had fallen short on leadership, transparency, accountability and integrity, which is a pretty damning indictment of somebody in a position of authority and power mm. and that he'd been correct to resign. It also exonerated the Slain Club and it exonerated Mr Neilis from any wrongdoing. Uh, not that we thought mm. that uh, Slain or Mr Neilis had done anything wrong. But the, the kind of the, where where we get into the area of kind of shady sort of governance is, it was left to the media executive themselves to decide what to do, mm. which to me seems to be a little bit. And I think a lot of the members of the executive were very uncomfortable with this and felt mm. that it, the whole thing should have been handled outside the county. And I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they were deeply divided on the issue as well. They were deeply mm-hmm. divided. Uh, mm. There was a very strong group in the management committee who felt that. Uh, uh, to the, what was said at the meeting was that uh, Mr Halloran and his family had suffered enough. Mm. There was another group who felt that Media had to be seen to do the right thing, and it had to, as the uh, as the group responsible for running the affairs of the GA in the county meeting, and that includes discipline. They had to be seen to do mm. the right thing. Uh, a vote was taken. There were 13, 13 people who had entitled to vote at the meeting and six voted that no further action be taken and seven voted that some kind of action be taken. So a small majority, but a, Very major- small. a majority nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, then legal advice scuppered that based on the GA rulebook. Uh, there was legal advice that they couldn't actually act because of a technicality about mm. the statute of limitations within the GA. Yeah. Uh, Personally, I, you know, I've studied the rules closely, and I I think that they could have taken action. That's my own view, and I think that's the view of of a lot of mm. the members of the management committee. But uh, Mead County Board put out a statement late on Saturday night. Uh, it was almost FAI like in their uh, timing, but they got a statement out on Saturday night. The Slain Club also released a statement on Saturday evening, but the Mead statement said that they had favoured. Mm. Uh, debarring uh, Mr Halloran for, for, for a year from being involved in the association but that they couldn't in legal advice it didn't really you know, mm. explain that it was on a, a margin of one vote yep. 
and it didn't explain really that there was a very strong argument put at the meeting that that he had suffered enough. And, you know, I make the point in the article yesterday, and it has been made several times to me mm-hmm. in the last 24 hours, that if you're if you're in charge of discipline, if I do something wrong mm-hmm. tomorrow, mm-hmm. I know pretty much straight away I've done something wrong, mm-hmm. and I'll regret it, and yeah. I'll deeply regret it. Mm-hmm. But if I go before uh, a disciplinary body with that as my defence, I'll be laughed at it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do wrong you must expect to uh, pay some kind of a price for it. But the decision is that no price will be paid for it. He's not being debarred, which means the opposite. Uh, he's free to he take up any role in the GAA. Free, yeah, that he's it, absolutely free, even though mm-hmm. it, it, in September mm-hmm. he's admitted mm-hmm. to sending you know pretty alarming messages mm-hmm. to a referee. I mean, interfering with the, yeah. in such a way is a pretty serious thing, in my, in my opinion. There is talk that his club, Drum Conrad, which mm-hmm. this has yet to be confirmed, but there is informed speculation that he has been nominated to run again for chairman at mm. convention in a couple of weeks yeah. whether he does or not remains to be seen but he is free to do yeah, so if yeah, he wishes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's many aspects to this story uh, uh, but uh, one that comes to mind because when uh, I mean, you talk about the violence at the match that sort of yeah. brought this uh, to this very uh, aggressive piece of rivalry between the clubs and the supporters uh, and anybody uh, who took one side or another uh, and how serious people take it uh, and uh, seem to lose sight of, of what's at play here. And what always comes to my mind is young children uh, yeah. and how they should be taught that this is about sport and sport is uh, about believing that the best team should win and it's a matter of sportsmanship and there's no signal of any sportsmanship in this story. No. And I, I mean, I wasn't at the game, but mm. I, obviously I heard like news of what had happened came to me very quickly. And uh, it was, um, you know, the first thing that came to my mind when I heard it, because I know the young fellow who left the pitch, OK, and he's a, mm. he's a very young fellow. And uh, he is a completely committed to sport. Yeah, he doesn't drink. Mm. He's devoted himself entirely to being as athletic and he's a very good footballer. Mm. And before any of all, before any of this uh, rather unsavoury aftermath, mm. I remember thinking at the time because I've known the chap since he was a child, and I remember thinking at the time, this is a person who loves football, who went out to play a game of football, and who ran from a pitch because he thought that his mother and sister were in trouble. And I was thinking to myself, what sort of a message is that to be sending out? And I mean, I think mm. that's your point. What, yeah. what is that? It is about? exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that like that there is a good relationship again between the two clubs. The two clubs have moved on and. Mm. To, for this to to be the sort of legacy of it is, is very very disappointing. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it there. Although I have a feeling uh, there'll be more about this story in uh, days to come. But thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning, John Green, sports editor with uh, the Sunday Independent. Who it has to be said is uh, Meath County Board delegate for Slane GFC. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Oireachtas Committee on Social Protection heard from the Minister last week who justified uh, the rollout of the Public Services Card. There were some pretty tetchy exchanges between Regina Doherty and uh, the members of the committee, especially Sinn Féin's John Brady. Can I ask as to what qualifications they have um, because really, there, there's probably six experts in, in in the field, six Irish barristers who qualify as being legally expert in in, in the field, um, and it's quite interesting that all of those have come out and said that um, 
Uh, 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 well, Minister, they, they, these are the experts in the field, and they have all said they, they, they have all said that there is a wholesale breach of, of GDPR. So you're, you're laughing at that. So are you, are you questioning their uh, qualifications? Are, are you questioning um, their um, experience and, and knowledge? That's uh, John Brady uh, talking uh, to Regina Doherty. You could hear the minister laugh uh, as uh, he mentioned uh, there, and he was wondering why it's an issue that uh, continued uh, through this tetchy meeting of uh, the Oireachtas Committee and as to why Regina Doherty was laughing, well, the minister said, well, she did laugh, uh, but it wasn't uh, because of the point that John Brady was making uh, to her about the public services card. Uh, we'll hear some more of the exchanges between the two of them now. What? Why, why are you uh, belittling, dismissing uh, the experts, um, the Irish experts, who have all said that, um, you know, the Irish barristers... Hmm? When did I do that? Well, when I raised it earlier on, Minister, you, you, you laughed as if to dismiss what I had said. No, I laughed because you said there's only six in the country. I said at least. At you least said six. said there was only six. At least. OK, so can I answer the question yes, that the deputy Minister. has raised? So you raised a question that... Um, it was mandatory for people using the naturalisation services to have a PCS card. Um, it's actually not. It's mandatory for anybody applying to retain uh, or apply for citizenship to have a PPS number. But the only way you can get a, PC, a PPS number in this card or country is by going through my department. And we all are aware that the Data Protection Commission has said that I do have the legal basis uh, to make people go through the Safe 2 process. And so words matter and nuances really matter. And so the statement that you've made is incorrect. Okay, well, I'm not sure uh, what the laughing matter was. Uh, The minister saying uh, she did laugh, but didn't laugh because he was putting forward uh, the idea that there were six experts who were being ignored. Uh, She said that it it was because he had said it was only six experts. Uh, If uh, that was what he had said, and... uh, Uh, The minister found it funny. I really don't understand why. Uh, But the minister did say that that was what she was laughing at uh, because obviously she feels uh, that there's more experts uh, than John Brady had alluded to. Uh, But she took issue with some of uh, the things uh, that John Brady was saying, uh, apart uh, from John Brady taking issue at her laughing at the point that he had made. uh, The minister felt uh, that uh, she had cast a slur against her on a couple of occasions and uh, the temperature went up a little bit at that stage. You're, you're making a suggestion that I've misled this chamber. Um, I have not, and I would ask Deputy you to Brady, withdraw um, that slur, because what you've suggested is, is that during the time where people can apply for passports, uh, over 18 or otherwise, whether it be their first passport or the passport that had expired within five years uh, of the last one, in order for them to do it online, they absolutely needed to have a PCS card, because how else were they going to identify themselves during an online process? But anybody during those periods that wanted to go to their guard station with their passport application, get it signed, get the photograph signed and arrive up to Mount Street always had the ability to do that. So I would respectfully ask you to withdraw that slur that you have made twice in your first opening statement when you walked in before I hadn't opened my mouth. You said that I had misled this chamber yeah, and you've done it again. I have not, I have not, and I would ask you to withdraw. You have misled this chamber on a number of occasions and I'm not withdrawing. Okay. 
Minister, we leave that Very strong there. accusations going both sides uh, there. Uh, Regina Doherty accusing uh, John Brady of casting a slur on a couple of occasions against her and John Brady accusing the Minister of misleading the House on a, a couple of occasions. Uh, we uh, had hoped to speak to John Brady. I don't think he's taking calls this morning. Is he, Maria? There's a problem getting a hold of John Brady. There seems to be a slight problem. <laughs> okay, well, right we'll uh, try to hear from John Brady a, a little bit later in the programme. I'm not sure if that will prove possible or not, but he was due to speak to us around he this was time. He All right, uh, seeing as how uh, we have uh, some spare time now, maybe you'd uh, bring us uh, some of uh, the calls that you've been receiving this morning. I will indeed. Michael Paul phoned in this morning. He was listening into your interview at the top of the show with Sean Fleming. And he says, we're just having our tea here, Michael, before we go back to work. Mm. And the discussion is about the asylum seeker situation in Ireland. And we blame the big nations like America and England who have been involved on the war on terror in the Middle East. I feel that they are responsible for this. Mm. They should be looking after the displaced people. Mm. Uh, you know, if they eased off on these wars, maybe we wouldn't have as many people fleeing and looking for refuge in other in other countries. I mm. think if you invade a country, you should be liable for the people who are living mm. there. Yeah, and uh, I suppose you could add to that and say that oil is at the root of a, a lot of these problems around the world. Gronje from Drogheda uh, on the same topic is confused uh, in relation to why the government is looking to establish more direct provision centres when there's so much bad publicity about these centres and the way in which the residents are treated there, mm. is there not a better system? Should that not be discussion? Be the discussion that we are having now, Michael? Um, or at the very least, they shouldn't have to spend such a long amount of time in these centres as they are at the moment. Mm, nail on the head. Yeah. Gronje mm. feels mm. that instead of... Uh, establishing more centres that the whole thing should be looked at again. Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, I think that's the point Sean Fleming made earlier on. Uh, Deal with the applications uh, much quicker and, I suppose, deport people if they shouldn't be here, if that's the final decision, uh, and uh, give them their refugee status if that's the final decision. Hold that thought, though, for a moment, Marie, because we have to go to headlines now. We'll come back to some more of those comments in just a couple of minutes' time. If people want to make comment, our number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. All right, uh, let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls and comments uh, that have been coming to us. Uh, Marie, you've had a a fairly busy morning on uh, the phones uh, with a a number of people in touch with you about direct provision and uh, some of the other issues uh, that we've been talking about. I take it that uh, some of uh, the callers were in touch as well about uh, that article in the Sunday Independent and the ongoing controversy in Meath GAA. That's right, Michael. But first, just we've a couple on still on the asylum seeker situation. John from Drogheda wanted to make a comment about the people who came on uh, the boat, you know, there and the, and the truck that went into Rosslare illegally. Mm. And now it has emerged that some of them are missing. And he's wondering how this can be allowed to happen. He says that he worked at sea for years and you never got into a country without papers. And yet we have people that came in illegally. And they were allowed to just disappear. And he thinks that this is very worrying. And he says it's also a concern 
uh, when you look at what's going on in relation to Brexit and mm. the opposition yeah. to a hard border and how are we going to, you know, promote that or fight to retain, you know, uh, the way things are at the moment mm. when we have asylum seekers eff- effectively disappearing. Yeah. And he thinks that there need that needs to be looked at and that we need to we need to adopt a harder stance. Well, I, I think uh, according to reports, uh, probably based on concerns uh, surrounding Brexit, it's pretty easy to cross uh, over to the UK by boat without uh, documentation. Uh, Anne says that she was, it was like she was listening to your clips that you played there at the exchange between Minister Regina Doherty and Deputy John Brady and she says it was like listening to two children uh, squabbling in the doll, Michael. Really? And maybe mm. if they spent half as much time trying to get things back on track in this country uh, instead of trying to score political points off each other. All right. Uh, well, let's, get, let, let's get a reaction to that <laughs> from uh, one of uh, the people mentioned because uh, we have managed to make contact with uh, Sinn Féin's uh, John Brady. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. As we heard in those exchanges, they were very touchy exchanges, by the way, but uh, some serious allegations uh, going both ways. Uh, the minister accusing you of uh, casting a slur against her on a, a couple of occasions asking you to withdraw Commons and you saying that you wouldn't withdraw Commons because you believed, uh, as you said, on a couple of occasions that the Minister had misled the House. Yeah, good, good morning. How are you? Yeah, certainly very, uh, I suppose, touchy engagement there last week at the uh, Social Protection Committee and it was the first time that the Minister has made her, herself available to come in and ask, um, and I, I suppose be asked and answer comprehensive questions relating to the uh, Data Protection Commissioner and her lengthy investigation, which went on for over a year, um, and the I, I suppose the findings of that published back in, in August. So it's the first time that we've actually managed to question the Minister on the, the, the content mm. um, of the, uh, I, I suppose, report from the Commissioner, and also what the Minister's in, intentions are going forward. And, and we heard that segment uh, where you raised a question about uh, the legal advice which she had received internally and asked her why she didn't take the advice of six experts here. The minister clearly laughed, uh, but there seems to be some disagreement over why she was laughing. Yeah, look, I mean, um, she she has said that um, the advice that she had got from the Attorney General um, is essentially rock solid. But um, as I said in my contribution, all of the experts, the Irish experts, and it's it's been said that there is probably about six, maybe eight, who have, um, I I suppose, a distinct expertise in this area, data and data protection, um, and indeed GDPR. Rules and, and that's all around the protection of uh, the individual's personal data. Okay, the minister oh, maybe thought that there were there were eight uh, because she seemed to think you said it had a, a, at least six. Yeah, look, yeah. we're not going to fall out over, over the numbers. Well, I just don't know why she was uh, laughing. Like, even if you had said that, as I was saying earlier on, uh, we were trying to uh, make contact with you earlier on. I'm not sure what happened with the phones. But uh, whilst we were doing that, we were listening to the clips. Uh, and uh, uh, as I said at the time, I'm not sure what the joke was. Even if the minister was correct in what she thought you had said, I'm not sure why that would have been funny. No, and, and, and certainly not. it's not a, a, a laughing matter because the minister has said, look, um, she is essentially ignoring, um, you know, the very, very strong uh, 
robust ruling from mm. the Data Protection Commissioner, which has found that the state has acted unlawfully in, in relation to the retention and, and use of, of individuals' personal data. The Minister has said, look, she has rock-solid advice. Mm. Coincidentally, the same advice was given to uh, Minister Shane Ross in, in, in relation to uh, driving tests, mm. um, and the Minister withdrew that require, requirement, the mandatory retirement for everyone seeking to get a driving test. He withdrew that back in, I, I think it was April this year. Um, so the same individual, the Attorney General, mm. um, gave Minister Shane Ross the advice. Um, and when the finding from the Data Protection Commissioner came out in August, Minister Ross said he was vindicated. He and his officials were vindicated mm. in the stance that they took and withdrawing uh, the mandatory requirement. Um, whereas Regina Doherty... I'm when saying I it was mandatory her, but not compulsory. But uh, am I right? Am I, am I right in thinking that the Minister sometimes gave different answers to the same question depending on how the question was put to her? <laughs> Certainly there is a, a, a bit of that, a, a play in words, but, you know, um, the, the, the ruling from the Commissioner is very, mm. very clear. But so, 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 Sorry, John, the Minister uh, gave different answers to the question about passports, didn't she? Yeah, uh, she uh, said you absolutely. didn't need one of these cards, and then when she was asked, "Did you need it?" If you were a first-time uh, applicant, she said yes, uh, and, and and gave a different answer to the same question because the question was put a different way. Well, she she stood over what she had said that. Um it wasn't mandatory for, for, for passports, for first-time applicants for passports. She said people could still go the traditional way into the, the, the passport office and, and, and get their passports. But we know that was factually incorrect because uh, between 2016 and, and 2018, first-time applicants are people whose passport might have expired for five years or more. The only option for them was to get a public service card and uh, put in a, an application uh, for uh, for the passport. So it was a mandatory requirement to get the public uh, service card uh, to get a, a passport. And we know after the ruling from the Data Protection Commissioner, um, coincidentally, a review was, was uh, initiated within uh, the mm. Department of Foreign Affairs and that requirement was dropped. And the same way it was dropped uh, for naturalisation, anyone going for Irish citizenship, it was dropped in, in the same way it was dropped uh, for a number of other different things, more or less bringing mm. in, in line with the ruling from the Data Protection Commissioner. And even at that, um, you know, they're, they're refusing to say yes uh, we were wrong in what we've done mm. um, we are going to get rid of all of the data that the data protection commissioner has said is being unlawfully held um, and interestingly um, the minister said they are uh, holding on to people's personal data um, and that's you know yeah, and she explained though that the reason for that is that an enforcement notice hasn't uh, been invoked. Now, this takes us to the question of the state going to court against the state. And I asked uh, the Minister many of uh, the questions uh, that she was asked of at the committee here fairly recently on the programme. And I also asked her that if an enforcement notice is put on the government and the government fights it in the courts and the government wins, does that mean that Helen Dixon should go as the Commissioner, as the head of the Data Protection Commission and vice versa? If um, the government loses, should the Minister go? Have you a view on any of that? Well, look, I, I, I don't think the minister um, or the government should contest this. I, I think they need to... The minister says um, she will, though. Well, the minister has said she, she will, and, and she will go as far as it takes. Um, and it's it's bizarre. It's 
um, absolutely lunacy that the, the, the state will take on the data protection commission. Well, I don't, but I don't understand the government's given. perspective on this. Sorry to talk about it. The minister said that uh, she wouldn't expect Helen Dixon to resign or anybody to resign if that was the case, but that would be ludicrous, would it not? Absolutely. When you have Helen Dixon and the Data Protection mm. Commission, um, I mean, they're tasked with, uh, I suppose, a massive job, a massive mm. responsibility. And we have the Facebooks, the Googles, mm. all, all, all of these big consumers of a person, people's personal data. Yeah. And what kind of image does that send out to those massive companies that, you know, look, if, if, if mm. you have an issue with, I, I suppose, the Data Protection Commissioner um, and, and any findings from, from that should just go to the and, and we'll get a sort with, with you know, I, I think it sends out a very, very dangerous message. But if a, a state um, commissioner was to effectively sue the Irish government and lost, uh, well, then you'd have to question uh, if uh, that position was tenable any longer. Well, look, <laughs> I, I suppose we have to get to that point. Mm. Um, and, and vice you know, versa. I mean, it, and, and, and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Look, mm. I mean, we, we know there is a second investigation ongoing in, in relation to the biometrics um, that um, uh, are, are contained on uh, the public service card, and, and the commissioner is engaged in, in, in that work now at the moment. So, um, the commissioner still has to, I suppose, initiate and, and uh, bring forward the enforcement notice. Mm. She has said she, she is going to do so. And I don't think that's a, a position that the Irish government should be putting up to the, the, the commissioner. Um, on one hand, you have them quietly removing the public service card as a requirement for naturalisation, for, for passport, for driving licence. Um, and, and really, they need to go the rest of the way now and ensure that people's personal data that has been um, retained is disposed of in a, a prompt and proper manner in which the Commissioner has said. And we also know that other schemes, the National Child Care Scheme, uh, which has, has rolled out, and, and this gives, gives a clear insight of, of the intentions of uh, government, that um, the only way to sign up, uh, to register for, for the National Child Care Scheme at the moment is uh, online, um, and you have to have a, a public service card uh, to do so. Um, and interestingly, uh, when pushed, they, they have said that, yeah, we will have a, a, a paper, a more traditional version of that application, but that is not due to come out on, until January. So there's a, a clear intent uh, to, as Paul uh, tunnel people into getting a, a public service card and um, we know there was plans to expand that in, even into more areas um, so with the, the National Child Care Scheme there's a penalty there um, essentially if people don't sign up for the public service card if they wait until the paper version of the application comes out you're missing out on a full month's uh, payment so there's a, a financial penalty essentially there for, for people who do not sign up for a, okay. a public service card and that's contrary um, and it's being found by the Commissioner to be totally, totally unlawful. Okay, we leave it there. Obviously, uh, those findings have been disputed by the Minister and by Government. Uh, But thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on social protection, John Brady, TD. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to a promise uh, to increase uh, the budget for local and regional roads uh, by some uh, 50%. Minister of State John Paul Phelan said uh, that more money is going into these roads, including roads uh, at uh, cul-de-sacs. Uh, he was responding to Declan Brannock, a Fianna Fáil TD for Louth, who's on the line with us. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you said the minister was chancing his arm. Uh, absolutely, Michael. I think it's important that your listeners, we 
would know that they live on specific categories of road. You have national routes and secondary routes. Uh, they're normally and mainly funded from the Department of Transport. But you have a specific category called L roads or local roads. In fact, uh, your road signage will tell you uh, what, whether you're on a national, regional or local. And in the case of the local roads, they're broken down into three categories. And the category I'm referring to are what are considered the least important route, which are cul-de-sacs, as mm. you've mentioned, or what are known as not through roads. The reality is that those what are called Class 3 uh, rural routes, I have said this, the citizens living on them have been treated as tall class citizens. For the last eight years, uh, not just Lone and Loud County Council, but indeed in many other councils across the country, uh, absolutely no pothole filling or no route surfacing has been considered for these routes. In fact, uh, communities in more recent times have been offered uh, that they can pay through what's called a CIS scheme or a community involvement mm. scheme as the only option. And my well, it's is, part funded by the councillor of the state, if you like, uh, and to the residents uh, contributed a portion. Yes, and I've been saying for a long time, Michael, these residents who are living on, on these cul-de-sacs, uh, the first thing you must remember, that I'm not talking about roads that have been built, mm. that are private roads. I'm talking about roads that are council legitimate roads are, and are on the council's uh, road schedule. But there's only, there's only money available from the government because of uh, who's in government. I mean, this is the point that John Paul Phelan was making to you, that Fianna Fáil never gave any money to residents living in these places. And it was uh, the Rainbow Government, he said, in 95 or 96, who opened up these schemes. Uh, abs- absolutely incorrect. There was always, and I spent 25 years in the local authority, there was always a scheme for third-class roads that would be done in, 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 in a proportional and equitable way relative to the money that the council have had. For the last eight years, an edict was actually issued by management to staff not to even go attempt to go into fill potholes in these roads. All I'm asking for and calling on the minister to do is to allocate, uh, to, to allocate a proportion of the to insist that the council allocate a proportional spend on these roads. But what about the significant increases in funding in the last few years? Uh, absolutely, and that was uh, that was that was achieved by Fianna Fáil in the program for government that that there would be a fifty percent increase in the spend on the roads. Okay. Missing my point, Michael. Oh no, no. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to counter your point with what the minister was saying. So you accept it when he says that there has been a significant increase, uh, but you don't accept that it it, it wouldn't be there at all had it not been for Finnegall. That's the point that you took issue with when you said he was chancing his arm. No, the, the the point at issue here is I accept that more money are going into local roads, but the reality is that the third class or class three roads are being excluded from any of this money. And these people are paying their road tax, they're paying uh, their, their fair share, the same as everybody else uh, in terms of contribution to the road monies. Yet these people are being excluded and they're being told that you have to pay... OK, so, 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 so you are taking issue then with what the Minister uh, was saying in terms of the significant increases because he was referring to the two schemes that you outlined, saying that both of those schemes had seen significant increases... Yeah, the two schemes he's referring to, and again, he doesn't know what he's talking about, whereas I can argue, mm. again, your listeners will understand. There is a scheme called LIS, the Local Improvement mm. Scheme. That relates to non-council roads, where people who have maybe built a roadway where there are two houses on and access mm. to a farm mm. can avail of a scheme which is EU-funded for non 
county roads. The roads I'm referring to are, as I said, the Class 3 roads that are on the council's road schedule are legitimate council roads but are being ignored because the feeling is that they're being they're not they're not important because they're not true. Mm, that's the community oh, involvement scheme. Uh, the community involvement scheme where they've got to pay yeah. up on fifty percent. Well, that's what the minister uh, said. He said that there have been significant increases to that. He actually, uh, maybe he was chancing his arm. He said that there's uh, two schemes. Uh, the first one that uh, you mentioned, uh, which is uh, the local investment scheme, uh, that that was funded by the Department of Tours, Transport and Tourism, and, and the second scheme, the community involvement scheme, he, he seemed to think was. Uh, funded by the Department of Rural and Community Development, but he said there were significant increases in both. Was he wrong on all fronts? He is absolutely wrong, and where he's missing the point that I'm going to reiterate again this Mm. morning is that the roads that he is offering the CIS scheme to are on the council's road programme but are being ignored. Mm. And a cursory glance, Michael, for example, at Loud County Council's uh, roadworks programme will show that, that these roads are being ignored because they're seen as being unimportant. I want to remind you, Michael, that in, in a lot of instances, and I can instance one not too far away from myself, known as the Darling Road, where there are approximately 17 houses built on it. Because of our approach to allowing people build on quiet roads, these roads have large numbers of people mm. who are damaging their cars. There's actually issues around oh, know, yeah, the, meat yeah, tanker. yeah. Mm. the meat tankers mm. not being prepared to go in these routes because mm. the council is only offering if you pay additional monies. Yeah, that yeah. is inequitable and it is not... All I'm asking is that yeah, a proportion... What I don't understand here is that you asked that question and from what you're telling us, everything you were told by a Minister of State in the National Parliament in response to your question was incorrect. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how can that be? How can a minister stand up in the doll and spurt out nonsense? Uh, because that's effectively what you're saying. Yes, I am challenging him now on the airwaves to correct, if, if, the, if I'm incorrect in my assertion, that the only way a third-class road can be resurfaced is by people having to pay additional monies over and above what everybody else on on the other class local roads one and two Mm. are not asked to make a contribution. Indeed, the contribution is already made through people's taxes and particularly through their their road taxes. Mm. Uh, Well, I I don't think the Minister said otherwise in respect of that, but he he did say that uh, the funding for these schemes had increased, and you're saying that that's not the case, and uh, you're also saying uh, that the local development scheme uh, is funded by Europe. He was saying that it was funded by the Department of Transport. Yeah, the LIS, Local Improvement Scheme, Mm -hmm. is solely for non-council roads. The CIS has been offered as a SOP mm. to people who are on the Class 3 roads who are paying the taxes the same as everybody and else. And he also said that it, it was the Rainbow Government that introduced these schemes in 1995 or 1996, and you're saying that that's not true as well? No, I didn't say that. I said the scheme was introduced, yes. I have no difficulty okay. in, in agreeing that. But this is requesting... But, but, but until those schemes were introduced, no money was being spent on these roads. That was the point that the Minister... Absolutely yeah, incorrect. Yeah, Absolutely yeah, incorrect, yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah. There was always a programme for for these third-class roads. uh, The third-class road always had a a, a work programme, certainly in Loud County Council, of which you know I spent 25 years Mm. on, so I think I can stand over that. In the last eight years, there is absolutely no programme to resurface these roads. And I think the 
point, Michael, that I was trying to make to the minister, but maybe you're losing in, in this context is, context is I was asking him that an instruction would be made to each local authority, including mm-hmm. the county council, to ensure that in proportion to the amount and length of roads that we have in each uh, local council, that there would be a programme of works to resurface these on a gradual basis. Mm. There's, there's no question that these roads uh, are not priority because of them in cul-de-sacs, but the people who live on them, who traverse them every day, uh, some of them are uh, actually like mud tracks right across this county. Well, yeah, just... I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I was losing that point uh, because I'm just confused. I mean, the exchange itself took about all of three minutes and the amount of misinformation or information that's being challenged is incredible. Yeah, and I think for your listeners, Michael, I'm not, when I ask the question, I'm given one minute to ask the question. Yeah. Uh, I'm not allowed to rebut it or yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to refute mm-hmm. it. I did attempt to do so, uh, that he is talking rubbish, and the reality is that the third class roads right across this country need to have a proportionate spend on them relative to, to the length of all of the other routes. That's all I'm requesting, and I believe it's a fair request, an equitable request, and it gives proportionality to people who are paying a fair share of road tax. Okay, let's uh, talk uh, about a a deadline that's uh, looming and uh, some uh, issues uh, that we'll all face into in uh, the coming months. Uh, You want to uh, encourage people, I suppose, uh, to make a submission on the county development plan. Yeah, look, the deadline is tomorrow evening at five o'clock for people to make submissions, Michael, to the county development plan. I'm particularly taking the opportunity, and I thank you for that, to say to your listeners out there, the many who have been in contact with both national and public representatives in relation to many planning issues and in relation to difficulty, particularly in achieving planning, that now is the key time to make that submission. Uh, if 20, approximately 46 hours left to do that, and I'm encouraging anybody who has had uh, zoning or planning issues in relation to particularly one-off housing which has been the bane of my life and indeed the bane of many people's lives uh, as public representatives. And while the decision in relation to the adopting of any submissions that people may make is in the hands of uh, locally elected public representatives at council level, I think it's important to have your say and not to feel that you haven't had that opportunity to have your say. So I'm encouraging anybody out there who may feel that they've been hard done by now is the time to make the submission. Uh, it closes tomorrow evening. This will test the blueprint or the Bible uh, for the next five years in loud in relation to uh, planning issues. Uh, and and you know, when people look and seek planning or their agents seek it on their behalf, uh, oftentimes people feel that the horse is bolted. Uh, the, the plan, uh, indicated development plan, uh, uh, excludes them from building. And just maybe I could just give mm-hmm. one simple instance of this, okay. Michael. Last county development plan in Louth, anybody who lives in a village area that's supplied with water or sewage has been effectively debarred from uh, looking for planning permission in in the rural area. I mean, that was certainly common in relation to somebody living in a town or a large town like Drogheda or Dundee or Dundalk, let's say that, but it has now spread out to every village. And it is my belief that if people can show that they have certainly a large number of years of a family have lived for a large number of years in a, in a, in a rural village or community. It is my strong view that they should be able to seek planning permission uh, in the vicinity uh, outside of their area, providing they can show that their lineage and their descendancy 
uh, has been there for a lifetime. Uh, and things like that need to be addressed. Uh, and while I'm no longer on the local authority, I believe it's important that that message go out to your listeners uh, in loud to, to clearly make their voice heard. And they need to do that before, uh, by tomorrow evening, okay. uh, to the council planning section um, to make a submission asking that whatever their issue is would be considered by the councillors. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, there might be election fever in uh, the UK, not the case here, and we'll uh, talk to Kevin Doyle in a moment about what he describes as uh, the four by-elections being amongst the most meaningless ever to be held in uh, this country. Kevin Doyle is Group Political Editor with INM, Independent News and Media, and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Kevin, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. But before we talk about the by-elections, perhaps we can talk about your front-page story. The headline is... Is very dramatic, all-out war in Cabinet over new penalty points regime. What's this about? Well, the all-out war phrase is not my own. It's, uh, okay. it's a direct quote from a, a, a Fine Gael minister um, who's kind of teeing up what could be a fractious Cabinet meeting tomorrow because Transport Minister Shane Ross is bringing forward a memo um, looking to reform, I suppose, and restructure um, how penalty points are assigned. And what he essentially wants to do is have graduated um, penalties or, or proportionate penalties um, for the crime. Um, and what that means is that depending on how fast you're going over the speed limit, well, the sanction will be uh, that much worse. Uh, and it comes up to the point where if you're 30 kilometres over the speed limit. So if you're on the, uh, mm. say, a dual carriageway at 100 kilometre speed limit and you find yourself going 130 and get caught, well, you'll find yourself before a judge uh, in that scenario. Right, OK. Uh, but there's to be a, a new offence uh, which would see uh, people getting serious fines of up to €2,000. Yeah, that's right. So basically, to, to run through it quickly and keep it as simple as we can, at the minute, if you get penalty points it's to, uh, for speeding, it, it's a blanket offence, basically. It doesn't matter how, how fast or how high over the speed limit you're going. You're going to get three penalty points and an €80 euro fine, and that's it. Um, but what Minister Ross is looking to do here is that if you're caught between uh, up to 10 kilometres over the limit, uh, the fine would actually be reduced to €60, euro, and you'd only get two penalty points. Um, but after that, things start to creep up. So mm. anyone speeding between 10 kilometres and 20 kilometres uh, over the limit, they'll get three penalty points and 80 euro. And that rises then to four penalty points and a 100 euro fine for anyone over 20 km- between 20 and 30 kilometres. And then once you go over 30 kilometres, the only way is to go before a judge and a fine of 2,000 euro. And does it matter what the speed limit is? No, and this is one of the bonus contentions on the Fine Gael side of things. So if you are, for example, in a housing estate where the speed limit is 30 kilometres uh, an hour and you're driving 60, uh, that'll be the same as driving on the, the, the motorway at 150 when you should only be at 120. So there is no kind of separation mm. between a built-up area, a motorway, a dual carriageway, that sort of scenario. And that's one of the problems that Fine Gael, uh, ministers seem to have with this idea. Mm. And is it that they don't think that it is, is as bad an offence to be doing 60, let's say, if uh, the speed limit is uh, 30k as it is to be doing 150 on the motorway? Yeah, well, it, I think it's more that a lot of people would say on a motorway you could uh, you could scoot along at 150 kilometres. Mm. I'm not endorsing this now for a second, but mm. uh, I think there is a feeling that you could scoot along at 150 kilometres on a motorway um, and nothing uh, yeah. could, will happen. Whereas if you're going 60 in a, in a housing estate, maybe there's children playing and the, the, 
the speed limit is 30 for a reason, uh, very specifically in an area, built up area, that there's a much higher risk there and that maybe there needs to be a, a proportionate uh, look at that. But to be honest, their, their gripes might go uh, a lot wider than that because they have issues with, um, they, they argue that the, the whole system um, isn't working anyway, that the speed limits across the country are wrong in many places yeah. mm. uh, and that they're not rightly measured in the first place. So there's a, there's a wider gripe here, if you like, and things that they think Minister Ross should focus on before uh, adding new problems. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, a lot of people uh, that would uh, agree with that. But uh, if you look at the first point, uh, I suppose if you're doing 60 in a 30k zone, you're doing double the speed limit. Uh, and if it was to be proportionate, uh, the same kind of sanction should apply to somebody who's doing 240 kilometres on a motorway where the speed limit is 120. Yeah, very hard to do it in percentages. Um, you know, by the same argument, you could say someone going 10% over the speed limit. Well, on a motorway, they're on 100. They're at 132 kilometres. Uh, but in in that housing estate that we're we're talking about, they're doing 33 kilometres. So you're three kilometres over the speed limit, mm. uh, and you're getting two penalty points for that. So there's an argument there that uh, it's very hard to do it on on percentages, and that you would have to have something more defined. Uh, in law if if you were going to do it that way. So all these things are what's up for debate. Uh, mm. The minister thought he had a compromise because he brought something similar and a bit, well, he brought something more draconian to uh, Cabinet a year ago and it was shot down. It was put back to a Cabinet subcommittee which the Taoiseach and the Justice Minister are on. Uh, they came up with this one but it doesn't seem like it's going to fly with Fine Gael, okay. uh, even as it is watered down. And uh, As your headline uh, and indeed uh, your source tells you it's uh, to be all out war tomorrow at that meeting of the Cabinet and you've uh, named six ministers who will speak against this proposal. Yeah and they're in, invariably rural which is in itself uh, interesting. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why, why this is seen as an attack on rural Ireland but that is the way uh, Manny and Fine Gael are interpreting it and these ministers uh, we're talking about Michael Ring Joe McHugh Heather Humphreys Michael Creed Simon Harris and Paul Keogh they're coming under pressure uh, from their own backbenchers and there, there is a lot of uh, unhappiness within the Fine Gael backbenchers and six months away from an election uh, those kind of voices matter uh, even more than they usually would uh, within the party ranks so they, there's likely to be a bite back and a push back against Shane Ross tomorrow Okay, I don't know if you believe in karma, Kevin, but uh, if you did, I take it that you did something terrible in a a previous life, having to cover these by-elections, which, uh, as mentioned earlier on, you've uh, described as uh, the most meaningless ever. Well, close to the most meaningless ever anyway. I mean, uh, because if if we do the basic maths on it, uh, these candidates, or whoever wins, um, they only get about 40 sitting days before we have a general election. So, the doll has already kind of moved into election mode. Um, they'll be arriving into a doll where everybody else is is looking outward, uh, and they'll be trying to set up offices. Uh, they'll be trying to work out their speaking time, get the the run of the house, if you like. Uh, and by the time they've done that, they'll be back out on the rear again, looking for re-election. So I think in that sense, we can argue that that you wonder mm. legally they have to take place, but you wonder what the value of it is. I, I take it uh, that uh, Rona Murphy. Uh, won't expect to be on the ticket going into the general election given the controversy that has uh, surrounded her this time around and uh, you're talking about the position that the Taoiseach has found himself in in your article in uh, the paper this morning Uh, but uh, it would seem from what you're reporting uh, that he's given up on her and uh, is coming back to Dublin and uh, forgetting about Wexford for the moment. Yeah, well, two things on that one, I suppose. First of all, um, Leo Varadkar, I understand, is going to be in Wexford today, but he hasn't told us. 
Um, um, he's supposed to be going down to canvas with Barona Murphy for about three hours this afternoon, uh, but it's incredibly unusual. Nothing from the Fine Gael press office or anyone in the Taoiseach's department to actually notify the media uh, of his plans. And you wonder, like, well, what's the point of the Taoiseach going canvassing with a candidate? Uh, unless there's going to be publicity there. The whole purpose for him to go is mm. to get his, his candidate in the paper. So that kind of tells you where they are at uh, with this particular one. He has to uh, be seen to go through the motions, but I think he's very much going through the motions. And what people in Fine Gael are telling me is that, yes, they're, they're putting all their attention back now on uh, their candidate in Dublin Midwest. That's the seat that was vacated by Frances Fitzgerald, the former Tónishta, when she got elected as an MEP. And the candidate there is a councillor, Emer Higgins, um, and she is seen as Fine Gael's best hope of taking one seat uh, in the by-elections, and that's probably as good as it can get for them at this stage. OK. Well, I suppose uh, there's somebody somewhere interested in it. Uh, because of what you did in a previous life, uh, you'll have uh, to remain concentrated on it. And uh, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor with INM, INM even, Independent News Media. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, you may have heard uh, Sinn Féin's uh, Darren O'Rourke last week on LMFM News talk about uh, the government's total dishonesty about home help hours, how it was pulling a fast one and uh, trying to trick the public about clearing waiting lists. Uh, we'll do that with Darren O'Rourke and uh, Gerry O'Connor, a Fine Gael councillor, in a moment. Good morning to both of you, though, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, Gerry O'Connor, uh, perhaps uh, we can begin, though, by talking about uh, this terrible fire at Meadowbank Hill on Friday night. Uh, what's the latest from there? Any, any understanding as to how this fire uh, started? Well, I think the guards have said that they, they were keeping an open mind in relation to uh, the, what was behind it. But I mean, from, from what I can gather and what I've heard uh, is that a van went on fire uh, in, a, in a driveway at 4 a.m. in the morning. It was adjacent to domestic uh, fuel tanks. Mm-hmm. And uh, resulted in the two, two houses went on fire, and then following another two, and only for the intervention of the fire service from Ashbourne and Dunshockland, who were able to control it, uh, it could have been a lot worse. The good yeah. thing about it is that uh, houses can be rebuilt. Uh, there was no injury, uh, although it was obviously fairly traumatic for the people in the houses, uh, and it's not an experience that anyone would wish for. Uh, Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear the outcome of uh, these investigations <coughs> as to whether the van somehow self-combusted or what it was, uh, because uh, they say uh, that uh, it was not deliberately set. Yeah, well, I think uh, forensics will be able to work out that yeah. uh, as to what the, 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 the cause of the fire was and how it, how it transpired. Uh, it's unusual, obviously, for vans to, to, to explode in, in, in the flames. So, obviously, there'll be a lot of... Uh, scientific evidence taken to look and see how it's, what caused it. Okay, uh, well, we'll watch that uh, with interest. Uh, let's uh, go to Darren O'Rourke uh, and uh, tell us uh, about uh, this Finnegale trickery, if you would, please. Well, my issue, Michael, and, and I, I think lots of people have experience of it in the area, my my, my accusation or my main issue with, with uh, Finnegale's approach to um, addressing the home health crisis is that it's fully laden with spin and trickery and it's being completely dishonest with people. So when Fine Gael talk about um, the home health crisis, they will say things like, we have never invested more in home health and will outline the money that's invested in us. They'll say there have never been more home health hours, which is, and both of those uh, points are true. Right. But, what they won't, but what they won't say, which is also true and even more important is that 
there is a huge unmet need for home help hours, and that home that unmet need is increasing. Now they and might they, they, they might say that. Uh, have they said otherwise? Because you've uh, accused them in black and white of being totally dishonest. No, they have said that they that, that they will uh, meet the the they will meet the the need that's out there, and the, and it's a simple state of, of fact that they won't meet the need that's out there. They'll fall short to the tune of one and a half million hours. So they'll say that they allocated an extra million hours, that they've yeah. never allocated more, that they've never spent more on it. But in fact, they will fall a million and a half hours short of what's required. And in Mead, we can see that, but the, the, the brunt of it, because we can see people in Blanchardstown Hospital and Our Lady of Lourdes. So they we, said they wouldn't we, fall a million and a half hours short of it, is it? They, they haven't in the, they, they have never said that they will fall a million and a half hours short. Okay, so, 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 so they, they said they wouldn't fall a million and a half hours short, is it? I, I mean, what, what's the totally dishonest part of uh, Fine Gael's announcements? That the, the totally dishonest part of the Fine Gael announcements is that they are presenting in it, they are presenting their efforts in relation to home help in a very positive way for themselves indicating that they're, they've never spent more, yeah. that they've, there have, have never been more hours, but they, could, they might equally frame it, which is, which is what mm. I'm saying they should do. They should frame it in the need that is out there and how their efforts are comparing and meeting those needs. Okay. And my, my accusation is that they are falling very, very far short of the need that is actually out there, and in fact, they're falling farther and farther behind okay. as years go on. Okay. Jerry O'Connor, uh, maybe you'd give a, an honest response <clears throat> to that, please. Yeah, well, look, first of all, no one's uh, disputing the fact that there is an issue in relation to the number of people on the wait list. I certainly am. And the government has recognised that. Uh, they've engaged in a detailed process to try and develop a new standalone statutory scheme for financing and the regulation of home support services. At the moment, we, it, it, it's, it's dual. We depend very much on the private sector uh, uh, to provide some of the services. The financial care implementation strategy commits the introduction of the new scheme in 2021. But I think the, the salient point of it is, like we've, the, the government spent money on, 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 uh, on this last year and the year before last and the year mm-hmm. before last, and they keep on increasing the figures. They've committed to an extra, an extra one million hours of income. That'll help try and clear the problem. It won't eliminate it because the, the, the salient fact is is that we have an Asian population. The numbers change from time to time. If you look at in June... But Dar- Darren O'Rourke seemed to think that Fine Gael had said it would be eliminated. No, they said they'd make a, they'd make a commitment of one million extra hours to, yeah. help, to, help, clear, to help clear it. Yeah. But the reality is if you look at the figures in, 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 in August of the 370... So Fine Gael didn't say, because this is, this is what the accusation is, that Fine Gael was totally dishonest saying that you would clear it. Well, uh, I don't think that's the fact. Uh, and, and obviously, look, this is an issue uh, that, that Darren has raised, and it's an issue within the general election uh, process, and obviously you have to try and score points off, off the government, okay. uh, and I understand that. But the reality is... I don't think the government said that they were going to clear the whole backlog because the backlog is fluid. You look at one month at 370, you look at another month, it could be 320, and a month after that, it could be 500. Well, that's it. I mean, you can, well, it's like asking how long a piece of string is. Uh, Darren O'Rourke, are you trying to score political points? Well, well let's, let's be clear, and, and, and Councillor O'Connor will confirm this. A Fine Gael colleague of his brought a motion to Mead County Council talking about the home health crisis. To Mead County Council... 
um, only a couple of months ago, identifying the huge unmet need that exists in in Mead and across the country. So Jerry's colleagues recognise it as an issue, but at the same time, they are in a position to do something about it. And they are in a position, in my opinion, to address the, the unmet need. They are, it, it, it would be 60 million euros so, so, so you're, so, to clear it. OK, so, so you're saying that Fine Gael honestly said there's a problem. I, I'm saying that Fine Gael... In, 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 Mead, in Mead County Council, they yeah. said there was a problem. So, uh, at, so, a nation, at a national level, at a national level, where it matters. What's the quote? Who, who, who said that the waiting list would be eliminated? Where, where it matters at a national level. Who said the waiting list would be eliminated? I, I believe Simon Harris, the Minister for Health, said that the waiting list would be, uh, that they have it under control, that they have never spent more on it. Where and when did Simon Harris say this? I, I, during the budget speech. That's, sort of, that's my understanding of it. During the budget speech, I, speech I, can, I can try and dig it out, but my, my, my main point in relation to this is that Fine Gael are presenting the, the issue in a way that reflects favourably on their own efforts. They're not reflecting it in the round that it's a spiralling crisis that they are not on top of. That's the point here, Michael. That's, don't miss that point, in fairness. No, no, no. The point, no, no. The point is that you've said Fine Gael were dishonest. I think we should clarify it's the government, Michael, and not yeah. the Gael. And we must remember it's a minority government being supported by the major uh, opposition party. So Fine this Gael. is a budget. The budget has to get through, Georoctus. Uh, and so, therefore, the figures are put out there. To be, to be there to be queries. Uh, and 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 Darren is 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 right to raise the point that he's made because he he, he sees it as a point. I don't agree that it's it's, it's an outright lie by the Fianna Gael party. Mm. In my opinion, it's an attempt. Well, I'd be. I mean, I I have to try and check the draw record, but I'd be very surprised if the minister said that he would eliminate waiting lists for anything. I don't think he could. It's like saying you could solve a housing problem tomorrow. Finnegale are being dishonest here because they are presenting their efforts in relation to the home health crisis in in a particular way that doesn't deal with the totality of the issue, and they're presenting it in such a way that it reflects well on their efforts. They are not talking about the full fullness of the problem, the fullness of the picture. But, but the Darren, Darren, it's, it's a home, the home support dishonest. And, the, and the funding that the government gives the HSE is based on the HSE National Service Plan. It's the HSE to come up and ask the request for the funding. The, the and the government, uh, excuse me, no, no, that's completely wrong. Now, the HSE come up with a National Service Plan based on the funding that they get from the government. Let's not be clear about... Let's be very clear in terms of how that sequence... Well, so the government, puts the, figure, the government takes the figure and just gives it to the HSE and say, off you go. I don't believe that happens, Darren. Ah, but that's exactly the case. That's that exactly the case. case now. That's exactly the case. Well, I, I, I really don't think that the minister ever said that he would eliminate the waiting lists, uh, which is well, uh, the claim that you're saying he made and that he was dishonest in making that claim. I, I think uh, that it's dishonest to suggest that he, he ever said that. I think he said that he was allocating plenty of money uh, to help to help reduce waiting lists, not to eliminate them. The claim I am making, Michael... There's another problem, there's another problem Michael. Uh, sorry, Darren, for the cost. There's another problem there. There is a problem in the private sector. There's, there's, a, there's a, a huge... Uh, no, uh, lack of availability okay. of getting people to do the home. Okay, Jerry, I, I, I'm sorry, to, I have to cross you because I'm running out of time. Just Darren O'Rourke to respond briefly. 
the claim I am making, let me be very clear in relation to this, Michael, and I'm going to be very clear, is that, is that Fine Gael are presenting this crisis in such a way as to be favourable to their own efforts. So, saying, so, so they're talking about what they are doing. They're, okay. not talking about, they're not talking about the unmet need, which is the real story for the families. And okay, the, I don't the, think they've been dishonest. That's the point. They are being dishonest, but because they're not talking about the about the unmet need. Well, dishonest, dishonest. Mean, dishonest to my mind means telling a lie. I don't uh, think it's that that news. holds up. Fake, it's fake no. news. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, spin. Yeah. it's spin. That's what it is. All right, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Uh, Sinn Féin Councillor Darren O'Rourke and Fine Gael Councillor Gerry O'Connor bring our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.